Westmount, good morning to you, and I invite you to continue worshiping by taking your copy of God's Word and turn to Romans, the 8th chapter of that book, Romans chapter 8. You're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. I trust and know you've been greeted already, uh, but if you're here with us, don't have a copy of God's Word, just look right in front of you, the rack there, there's a Bible for you to follow along with us, Romans chapter 8. And as we begin this morning, and as we set our hearts to this portion of Scripture, blessed portion, let's begin with this question. It's an inward question. What do you most treasure? What is your thing? I want you to think right now. What's your thing? What's your most prized thing? What is the thing you cling to the most? Think. And I want you, beloved, me with you, let's put away the Sunday school answers this morning, right? What thing is it? What's that thing? Your most prized thing. What's the thing? What is the memento? Is it money? Is it health? Is it a relative? Is it your spouse? What's the thing? What is the thing that you cannot imagine being taken from you? I want you to think right now. What is that thing you can't imagine? It gives you the knot to think of it being taken away from you. What is it? Let's soul search right now. What is it? For most of us, the possibility of that thing, whatever it is, being taken from you causes great insecurity, doesn't it? Doesn't it cause you great insecurity to think it could be stripped from you? And it is your lack then of security that causes other domino issues. Is that not true? As you fret over losing your money or your family, it consumes your thoughts. Maybe it's the low-grade fever you're running this morning because you worry about your health. And what if you lose your health? If we're being upfront, beloved, this morning, we recognize we all struggle with insecurity. And insecurity, let's do this, is not something relegated to adolescence. The young, the young one struggling with their identity, let's not relegate insecurity to that. Our problems, beloved, often start there, denying or deflecting an obvious ill that we're struggling with. Church, for most saints, think of Romans 7, we battle. And here we battle with insecurity, and we battle fiercely. Listen, deep down we have fear and anxiety that the things we treasure the most, is this not true? Comfort, family members, our health, we we struggle because we're afraid that those will be taken from us. And that is a problem. But listen, not because we need to cure that kind of insecurity. And here it is. There is no cure for that kind of insecurity. Is that not true? There's none. Why? Because those things are inherently insecure. The answer then is not to cling tighter drill risk to zero, or look for more control. Westmount, that insecurity, that looking for it that way, that method, that way is a problem because it's looking for security in the wrong place. There is no security in anything that can be taken from you. No security at all. Consider with me, the more you look for security in fleeting things, the more insecure you will be. And I suggest that is our real security problem. But church, what about something that can never be taken from you? What about security that is rooted in something that we can never be separated from? And you say, right, right, God. I'm at church. God is the answer. Listen, for the Christian, that may be true in a coming sense. But for many, many people on the broad way, God will be taken from them. Currently, they're living under false security, a claim. And soon they will be separated from God. 
forever. More, claims of God or God himself, omnipresent as he is, is not what the Bible says that the believer's security is found in. Remember, we've done away with Sunday school answers this morning, right? Beloved, such an answer might reveal where we need security correction. So saints, let us be set straight this morning. Let's recalibrate our security together. To do so, let's return to Romans chapter 8 and the final verses of this magnificent chapter. What a journey. These words that we're about to read in front of us, these words are the implications of all that we have studied this far. And we're presented in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, with the grand takeaway, and it is this, our blessed assurance, our everlasting security. Look and consider with me, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, what indeed do we say to these things? Please help us this morning to grasp indeed the height and depth of these very words. Let us have eyes to see, minds to understand, And let us live in the fear of you alone as we leave this place and beg and pray in the name of your Son. Amen. What is security? Christian, look at it. Verse 39. Security is this, having the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? There it is. Not just God. Many claim just God, right? Not just God. Security is not just God. Not just God's love. Many claim just God's love. Not just God's love. Security, biblically, look, God's love manifest in his son, his own son, Jesus Christ. There it is. And further, not just possessing that love of God in Christ, but see verse 39 again, the eternal security, the blessed thought, to know that nothing in the entire created order will ever be able to separate you, Christian, from that love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That reminder, believer, is framed here around, look at it, the first two persons of the Godhead. The love of God and the love of Christ. By way of introduction, the love of God the Father, as we'll see, is a positional love. It's a love that foreknows us, it purposes us, it places us. This is love given to us, lavished on us, judicially. That means it's love that declares us not guilty, our new position. It's love with no condemnation. The love of Christ, secondly, as we'll see, is the love of God the Son is the relational love. Some call it the practical love. This is very personal. In classic triune fashion, both aspects of love, distinct but yet one love of God, will be seen here in this passage. Let's begin our first bracket, the love of God. Verse 31, let's look at it. The love of God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
who can be against us? Paul closes this with a consideration, this chapter, this grand chapter, and it's this. What then shall we say to these things? That's the response. It's as if Paul is saying we've covered so much, so much glorious reality The apostle pauses then and provokes us to reflect on these things. And you ask, what are these things? The assurance of goodness and glory. We studied that last week. Look at verse 28. These things like this, that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. These things like this, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. These things. And the implication here as we land at the end of the chapter is, Westmont, how do you respond to that? What shall you say to that? It's a wonderful way in God's word to say, did you just read that? Did you just consider that? What should you say? But there's so much more in these things. What do we say to the Holy Spirit's help in your prayers, in our prayers? Verses 26 and 27. What should we say to the Spirit's guarantee? That's right, guarantee in us. Yes, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What's that? The adoption of sons, the bodily redemption coming. Verse 23. What is the implication that Christian, earlier in the chapter, were fellow heirs with our elder brother Christ? Fellow heirs, joint heirs. Verse 17. What can we say to the fact that there is no condemnation? For those who are in Jesus Christ, as the chapter opened, 8-1. And that's just these things in chapter 8, this pinnacle, this summit. What of these things also that we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness? What of the magnificent truth that we're now obedient from the heart? Chapter 6, verse 17. What shall we say to new headship? Chapter 5. No longer in Adam, but now in Christ. What do we say to such things? What do you say to imputed guilt? No more. Now imputed righteousness. Not only our foundation, but our everything for life and godliness in Jesus. What do we say to the fact, believer, that you're no longer destined for hell in Adam, but predestined for glory in Jesus Christ? What do we say to these things? What should we say to faith counted as righteousness in God's promise, chapter 4? What should we say to mankind's depravity, our natural state, our earned state, but Christ's redemption for those that don't deserve, chapter 1, 2, and 3? Church, what then shall we say to these things, all things that are the gospel of God? Romans 1, verse 1. In light of these things, God's word says, consider now the implication... Verse 31, look at it. If God is for us, who can be against us? What do we say to that? If God is for us, who can be against us? To help us grasp the magnitude of this, let's just consider the second part of that first. Look at it with me. Imagine if the apostle just asked this, Christian, who can be against us? Just think about your answer there. Who can be against us? Some might chuckle at Paul's misguided optimism, right? Oh, Paul, here we go again. Some might have a cynical retort, are you serious, Paul, who's against us? Some might try to rally themselves in spite of the evidence, yes, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Paul, who isn't against us? Beloved, let's pull out these thoughts together. Who isn't against us? The world? The media, the left, the progressives, the nominal church, my neighbors, my children, my parents, my loved ones. Who isn't against us? On it goes. 
The reality, both felt and tangibly, is that many, many are against us. Is that not true? We need no bullseyes on our back. But the text here does not just ask who can be against us, does it? Oh, beloved, please, don't miss this. It doesn't just say that. It says what? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, in the original, it's like saying, because God is for us. You see that rebar there? Because God is for us, who can be against us? So this is an implication from an objective truth. Because God is for us, because the highest power, not just on earth, but in heaven is for us. Because the supreme God over all creation is for us. Because sovereign, almighty God is for us. Listen, who can be against us? With that reality then, framing the question now, and we put it on all together, the answer is gloriously what? No one. No one. None can be against us if God is for us, right? So splendid. Beloved, this does not mean that other people and powers don't affect us, right? Let's be clear about that. That doesn't mean that. And that's not what this text is saying, as we'll see very clearly in a moment. They do. And I know many of us in this room would give a collective, yes, indeed, they do, and it hurts. It hurts. But the rhetorical question the apostle puts forth here is to remind us that while they work, Against God in their plans of evil, God is working in it. This is the glory. In all things, he's working in it. And all things, he is bringing together, working together for the good, verse 28, and more for the glory, verse 30. It means try as they might for anti-God ends, and oh, do they try, right? Try as they might, it matters not. Ultimately, It's futile work, right? If this is true. Who can go against God? That's the question. Who can go against God? Answer, no one. No one. Thus, if God is for us, how in the world are we part of this equation, right? If God is for us, amazing, who are we? As we've seen in Romans, then who can be against us? If God is for us. Beloved, this is another life-altering verse like we've seen in Romans 8. Verse 31, like verse 28. Tremendous encouragement. Not just getting you to Monday, getting you to every day. But you may say, yes, okay, I know. But how do I know God is for me? Right? How do I know God is for me? That all sounds great. How do I know? Well, Paul will show us. He won't just tell us. He's going to show us. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Christian, look at it. The ultimate demonstration of God being for you is, listen, Christ sent. The ultimate demonstration of Christ, of God, I'm sorry, being for you is Christ sent. Now, before we unpack this, consider with me the things we, we, mere humans, right? Human beings, the things that we, think with me, the things we refuse to give up. And we refuse to give up, not out of love for others, but out of what? Love for self, right? We know, we do not know this economy naturally, right? Very antithetical to who God is. Think about the things we refuse to give up. For toddlers, it's toys, right? Refuse to give them up. For the young, it gets more nuanced. It can just be time. And for us older, it's much more distinguished. It's loved ones. Don't dare give up loved ones. Yes, this is so different, so other to us. We do not give up much let alone self, in lesser things. We just don't. We cling tight. Hence, as we think about security, as we talked about earlier, we think about God and his giving. In fact, our great struggle to love comes down to this. 
So what I lay before you. Our great struggle to love, you know what's at the root of that? A refusal to let go of ourselves. Our problems with love come from the fact that we love ourselves too much. And we don't want to let go of ourselves. Yet, verse 32 says, God the Father, this is love, like we sang, this is love. God the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up. You see that? How? That's given up for death, for bearing wrath. God gave up his son in that way. And notice, God gave up his son for us all, it says. That means, what are we studying in Romans? The Jew first, and also the Greek, for us all that believe, Romans 1.16. This is what we learned. Remember chapter 5, pray you haven't forgot it. Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us. Well, how is that, Paul? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, do you see that? Not cleaned up. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God's own son, Jesus Christ, given up as a sacrifice for us all who believe is how we know saints. That is how we know that God is for us. Paul, if you noticed, uses argumentation here similar to the Son of God. Jesus uses this line of argumentation often in the Gospels, does he not? It's called arguing from the greater to the lesser. In other words, it's simply this. If this greater thing is true, how much more true is this lesser thing? Paul's doing the same here. In other words, if this greater ultimate thing that I'm going to show you in God's love, the love of God, how much more than this, which he will unpack? And look again, verse 32, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up, lesser, how much more will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see that? From the greater to the lesser. All things, by the way, is all things. It's salvation and sanctification. It's the good and the glory. It's all things graciously given up proofed and evidenced by Christ sent. Church, this is the love of God. The giving of his son, giving him up for us. And consider such love that works through humanity's evil choices. That's also what we've been learning. It's a love that works through all things. Humanity's evil choices included, but it's still God. Sovereign over it all, still God. Octavius Winslow, I love this, he said this, I quote, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the Jews for envy. But then he says this, but the Father gave him up for love. Westmount, this again is the love of God. God giving up his own son freely. And God using, do you see, that all the agency that he can in the cosmos to demonstrate that love and his sovereignty. What peace. And if we, the redeemed, are the recipients of that kind of love, then what? Look at verse 33. Next question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Notice here, Paul does not say, now let's notice this again. He doesn't just say, who shall bring any charge against us, period, does he? If that were the case, there would be multiple answers. Is that not true? Others accuse us, and at times rightfully so. We sin against them. Satan accuses us. He is, of course, what? The great accuser. That's his name. In fact, texts like Zechariah 3, 1 to 2, Revelation 12, verse 10, suggest that he lives to make accusation. This is Satan's M.O., To just keep pointing the finger at the saints. Like with Job, Satan is ready to pounce, ready to accuse God's own repeatedly. Our conscience accuses us. We sin, we know it, and we feel it. And we stand accused. Christian, there are many ready to bring a charge against us, right? We know that. 
But the verse reminds us why those charges cannot hold in the heavenly court. And Christian, let's grasp this anew this weekend. What the verse does say is this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You see that? That's very, very different. Even further, the end of verse 33 tells us that it is God who justifies. God is for us, remember? God justifies. We are his elect. Others accuse, Satan accuses, our conscience accuses, but none of those justify. Not even ourselves. Only God can justify. And he has indeed justified some, right? And those whom God has justified, his elect, his chosen, with those there's no charge. This is Paul's point. Now let's not lose the context. Who are God's elect? Recall, not just anyone. They are those we learned last week. Verse 28, look at it. They're those who love God, which means not just anyone claiming to love God with fruitless words. No, we stay in the text. This is those who love God because they were first loved by God. 1 John 4.19 God's elect are those first loved by God. Those, verse 29, those foreknown by God. God's elect are the predestined, verse 30, the called, the justified, the glorified. Those in that inseparable, unbreakable process. Those ones. God's elect cannot have cosmic charges leveled against them because in God's sovereign plan, they are cleared. Not only are they in this inseparable chain and plan of God, but more, verse 34, look at it. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here, Paul now is going to move to give you the basis Not only just God said so, this is the God did so. Who is to condemn? Paul pines to open verse 34, and the answer again, no one. Why? Because Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation. And how can that be? We know we're guilty, but how can there be no declared condemnation anymore? Well, it is for those, God's elect, who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? In other words, what's the implication? Outside of Christ, there is condemnation. Do you see that? There is remaining, wrath of God remaining, John 3, on them. In Christ, there is no due condemnation. Now, this is recap, Christian, we get it, but crucial recap in order to grasp the love of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus are secure in the love of God. Paul's going to lay out now, look at verse 34, four reasons foundational in Christ why we are secure in him. One, look at it. Christ died, he says. Christ died a death that was far from ordinary or a death that we know. Christ died after living perfect life under the law of God. Where we sinned, he didn't. Christ died laying down that perfect life lived and bearing God's wrath. That's not normal death or life. A penalty Christ didn't deserve, but here it is, but he willingly bore it for us, believer, you and me, that exchange. Our sins. On a weekend like this, let's pause and think about it again. Every single one of our sins, Christian, that you did, that you deserve hell for, He took on himself and took your place. That's the kind of death and substitution we're talking about. And he did that even though he was perfect. And he gave us his perfection in the divine court. He imputed righteousness to us and all of it, that in exchange for what we deserve. That's one. Second reason, more than that, verse 34, Christ was raised. So he wasn't just dead. It wasn't just a token death. He wasn't just a great example. No, Christ was raised. This is the resurrection. Christ was raised again in power, Romans 1.4, from the grave after the third day, just as it was written about him. Christ did not stay dead. Listen, the grave could not hold him because that would be cosmic injustice, wouldn't it? The grave can't hold him. 
Because that would be wrong. Death had to surrender to the Christ. And the Christ in his life because his sacrifice indeed was spotless. As we learned early in Romans 8, as Jesus rose, so too those after him. If you're in him and follow him, so too you will rise from the grave on that day. Three, Paul goes on, Christ is at the right hand of God. That's that place of preeminence that's foretold in Psalm 110, verse 1. Christ, not only the God-man, but the ultimate man, the new Adam, our new head. This is the place of honor for the ultimate man. It's the place of victory, God's right hand, and it's also a military picture, all enemies vanquished under him. Listen to Hebrews 10. David took us there. Let's go back. This is perfect. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. God's right hand, do you see that place of preeminence, the place of might, and it's the place of Christ. And notice this for Romans 8, our security is directly tied to Christ's seat at the right hand of God. And fourth, Paul continues, Christ is interceding for us right now, not just at God's right hand, but interceding there at God's right hand. Christ is our great high priest. He's our ongoing mediator before God on our behalf. This is blessed, just so blessed. This also in the letter to the Hebrews We were to go to Hebrews 7, after the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 110, he says this in chapter 7, verse 22. This is the argument he's making. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That he is the one in fulfillment of Psalm 110. It makes him, if he's the one with that place at God's right hand, he makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. But more, the former priests were many in number. Now remember what the priests were to do. Make intercession for the people. So here, the author of Hebrews is saying, you have a great high priest, greater than that. Listen to the argument, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he, that's the Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Not just a perfect sacrifice, an eternal one. Consequently, verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, and then this, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Beloved, this is why those in Christ Jesus are secure. Because Christ died for us, Christ was raised for us, and now Christ is at God's right hand, constantly interceding for us. That is the love of God. To give his own son for us. That is God for us. Okay, that's the love of God. Now the text turns to Christ and and his love. Let's do that. The love of God and the love of Christ. Let's read verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul says now. Position set, love of God shown. Let's turn to the Son and His love. Who shall separate us from that love of Christ? Notice a couple things here. Number one, notice Paul uses the same line of reasoning here, the same rhetoric. He does this with the obvious question. So obvious question means obvious answer, right? Same thing. Secondly, Paul now moves from God the Father to God the Son, from position to relation. The love of God places us in Christ, and to be in Christ, note this, is a place of permanence. To be positioned in Christ is to be loved by Christ. And to be loved by Christ means we will always be loved by Christ. Do you see that? This is the point. Without separation. Of those first placed in Christ, think of Christ's ministry, the first apostles. In John 13, 1, John tells us he loved them to the end. 
That was before, by the way, they would all flee and deny him, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, Our Lord Jesus Christ loved us and gave us, note this, not just comfort, but an eternal comfort. Beloved, this is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. To be loved by God, known by him, so that God's Son is given up for us. And we can be found in him, united to him, and made sons and daughters forever. And Christian, if you have that love, and you do if you're a Christian, then look at the implication. You can never be separated from it. Do you see that? You can never be separated from it. You can be separated from many things in the cosmos, right? In fact, everything. But you can never be separated from the love of Christ. It is love that is beyond this world. It is love that is not of this world, which means it is love that will naturally, logically endure beyond anything that is in this world or of this world. And once again, Paul will show us. Let's just let these words speak for themselves here. Look with me at verse 35. Paul begins with a series of words and scenarios that we could also offer in protest. I think about the many lives represented in this room. And I know there will be many heads nodding as we go through this. Shall tribulation separate us? Tribulation there, by the way, is outward affliction. The idea here is all that squeezes us in life. That's your picture. Pressing in, squeezing us, the difficulties pressing in on us. And Paul here is saying, surely tribulation will separate us from the love of Christ. Surely that, right? And you say, yes, I felt that. Paul goes on, she'll distress. The sense here is narrowness of space. Even more, picture strict confinement. This is claustrophobia and more. This is being hemmed in. And that feeling, this is that felt, very strong narrowness. You say, yes, it feels like I'm being separated from from God, from Christ. Next, Paul says, shall persecution, this is, and we've talked about persecution before, versus just difficulties proper. Persecution narrows in, this is pursuit. It is targeted pursuit at God's own. This is life disruption, trial that comes directly from being placed in Christ. The unbeliever can't be persecuted, right? In that sense. This is biblically, because you're in Christ, because you confess Christ, because you live Christ, you're being persecuted for that. The verse continues, shall famine or nakedness, the picture is just so clear here. This is to go without food, to go without clothing, But even more broadly, this is destitution. This is circumstances that leave us vulnerable, uncovered, unprotected. You may say, yes, that's definitely a felt separation. I know that. Paul says, shall danger. This is risk and hazard. This is all manner of peril. Paul says, shall sword. He really gets to it here. This is the idea behind sword is execution. Right? There will executions. Certainly will separate us. Certainly will make sense in our minds. And it's an impressive and formidable list, isn't it? Certainly, and here, here's the real uh, flow lying behind this, or pulling this together, as Paul writes. Certainly, look at those, those can separate us, can they not? Well, they certainly feel like they do, don't they? Saint, I want you to think this morning of your list. What of your lot? I want you to think of those moments in many of these where you feel like you've been separated from God because of what you're going through. I know you can relate to that. I want you to think of that. Think of those times where you wonder with tears on knees alone, where is God in this? I know you know that. You know tribulation. You know distress. Maybe you're undergoing persecution right now because you're holding to Christ. It is possible you have needs now. You don't know where the food and clothing will come next month. You look around today. 
And to add to it all, you recognize danger looms. In fact, maybe for some, sooner than we think, death looms. Listen, Paul is not speaking theoretically here. He's not waxing eloquent, as some say, in this passage. Listen to Paul's lot, 2 Corinthians 11. Are the servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. And listen to this. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. You read that passage so familiar to us, you wonder, Paul, what else could you have experienced in the cosmos, right? What else? And what about God's elect Before Paul, the ones that came before him. Remember in Hebrews 11, to go back to Hebrews. Do you remember the faithful? If we were to go to chapter 11, their fate, their lot is described this way. When we think about those, again, going before Paul, those that are gods. They were stoned, verse 37. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Beloved, it is more true than not, when you look at the history of God's people, that this is more characteristic of the ones that love God. Not this illusion that we have in our day and age in the West today. This is what characterizes those who love God. In fact, Paul has all of those suffering cosmic ails because they are Yahweh's. That's what he has in view here. In fact, to prove it once again, he's going to show us. He goes, look at verse 36. He's going to go here, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. As it is written, that of course, we know now, here at Westmount, that is the cue that you're headed where? To the Old Testament. So let's do that. Turn to Psalm 44. We heard it read this morning. Let's go there again. Earlier, Andrew read this psalm for us. What Paul is going to do here, this is part of this magnificent put-together that Paul is doing for us in Romans 8. He's saying, not only am I going to tell you, not only am I going to show you, I'm going to remind you. This has always been for God's people, wondering about cosmic ails and the where is God in it. We're not, we don't have time to go through this entire psalm, but it would be so good if we could. This, to the sons of Korah, and remember, again, as you heard it this morning, the sons of Korah, they're going to relate here that it seems on one hand that God has rejected and humbled his people. Notice, by the way, they start with reverence for God. O God, we've heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you've performed in their days and the days of old with your own hand. And they're going to go through the omnipotence of God, the might of God. But then notice, though, as they turn in verse 9, you've rejected us and disgraced us. This is the felt reality for them. You've made us turn back from the foe. Verse 11, note this, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. This is the Israelite, God's people, with a cry for him. But let's zero in on verse 17. Let's read this again. Listen to, to their observation, their felt reality. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. You see what they're saying? This is not one of those judgment passages. Sons of Korah, being very honest, we have not forgotten you. We have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our eyes our steps departed from your way. Yet you've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If, like they have in other places, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, which again, of course, they have done, but not in context here, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Listen, Israel has done many things to forsake Yahweh. But the point of Psalm 44 is to say, we're suffering not in judgment, 
We're suffering all of these things that we know God is bringing upon us. Why? Verse 22, this is what Paul references. Yet for your sake, not for judgment, not because of us, your sake we're killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Do you see that? Yet for God's sake. Consider that, beloved, now as you turn back to Romans 8. Again, so much we could cover here. The psalmist knows, and Paul confirms this, true in Israel, true in the church, Suffering doesn't separate us from God's love because it is for God's sake that we suffer. You see that? Suffering doesn't separate us from God's love because it is for God's sake that we suffer. And Christian, more specifically here in Romans, it is for Christ's sake. Fuller revelation. It's because we're in Christ, in His Son, and living out Christ. That is why we suffer, like Christ. But like Christ, our suffering is not in vain, right? And this is your hope. This is not idle suffering. What have we learned in this letter? Let's not abandon all that we've learned. Our suffering has purpose. There is no other suffering on earth, right? Unless under God, and it is Christian, that has purpose like this. We've studied this at length in chapter 5, earlier in chapter 8, and even more in verse 37. Let's put this all together as this chapter closes. No, in all these things, same these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Again, we've considered suffering much, and we hold it tightly as we come now to the crescendo of this chapter. Suffering as an Israelite, suffering as a Christian, Suffering under God, suffering through Christ. Consider that. Paul says, in all these things, from tribulation to sword, we are what? More than conquerors, period. We don't stop there. Look at it. How? Through him who loved us. And this is so important. More than conquerors. Not just because of human resilience. Not because of Peterborough Strong. Not just because of human might and pulling up our bootstraps rightly and being able to endure a lot of hardship. No, the world likes to think so. Just believe you'll overcome and you will. No, pull back the curtain. Listen, on so-called human resilience, and what do you see? In all its nakedness, you see hopelessness. Human resilience presents well in the marketplace, but in the closet it falls apart. Look again, we're more than conquerors, how? Through Him who loved us. We conquer, church, ever and only through the Christ, and specifically in this text, through the love of Christ. That's it. There is no conquering outside of Jesus. There's none. None. But in him, look again, blessed hope, we are conquerors plus. Really struggle to pull this through from the original here. It could be overwhelmingly conquerors, hyper conquerors, could say over conquerors. So good. This is intensive. This is abundance. So we're not just a tougher, hardy lot. Oh, those spiritual folks. Here on Clonsilla, we're not just that group over the past year, past three years. Wow, somehow they made it through. We are Christians, little Christs, meaning following after him, saved in him. It means we don't just endure suffering. It means we know that our trials are for our good, Christian, right? It means we don't just make it through suffering. Panting and heaving while I made it. No, it means we come out stronger and it turns out we've drawn closer to God. And it means after our suffering, our reward is great. This is just so good. Listen to this, the second letter Paul wrote to Corinth. He says this, by the way, in a similar context of the frailty of our bodies and the things that are going on around us, all the afflictions and so on. Let me go to verse 16. Listen to this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then listen to this, verse 17. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Christian, that is your reward. That is suffering's reward. Right? We can say that because the Bible says that. The reward coming in suffering. That's the love of Christ. An overconquering love that overcomes all earthly peril. Now look at this. Paul closes here with a final implication and stamp of assurance. Look at verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, as you look at those verses and think, those verses sound familiar, it's because they are, and they should be. They're very often quoted, aren't they, in the church, right? You say, yeah, I've heard those before. If you look at those verses and you say, it sounds sweeping, almost lyrical, it's because they are. It's like a climax, right, at the end of this chapter. If you look at those verses and they sound assuring, beloved, and I pray they do, it's because they are. So let's drink them up with the assurance that they are. Let's just look at them. No need to belabor this, to just savor it. No need to get out a drill bit here. We just need to look at it. Just consider them as a whole. Listen, neither death nor life. That couplet, Paul says, the sweep of life, the suffering at death and the suffering in life. We know that. Neither angels nor rulers, the scope of authorities in heaven and on earth, nor things present or things to come, So in other words, there's no big bad unseen still to come that can separate us. All things present and to come. Nor powers, this direct reference to supernatural things, miraculous things, metaphysical things, nothing like that. Nor height, nor depth, this is the spatial sweep, no place anywhere. And if anything was missed, by the way, Paul caps it with this. You see him do this so often, as if to say, I can't get it all in here, right? But to make sure that you get the point, nor anything else in all creation. In other words, whatever you can think of. Westmount, that is the entire universe, the cosmos, the entire created order. Absolutely nothing in it. Verse 39. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in creation, nothing in it, can separate us from the love of the one over creation. You see that? That's his point. I don't know how we cannot derive hope from that. Nothing in creation can separate us from the love of one over creation. Nothing. But we must close, Westmount. We can't leave this tremendous text without applying it, taking just a few seconds to apply it. God's assurance is not that trial and suffering will never come our way. We've said that before. Say it again, we'll continue to say it. God's assurance, God's assurance is not that trial, suffering will never cross your path. You can see many have experienced the ruin of Christianity because they've been taught that. Right? That's not what the Bible teaches. God's assurance is not that trial and suffering will never come our way. And you know that. And precious Westmount family, you are suffering. We are suffering. You know tribulation and distress. You know loss and you know earthly separation. Many of you certainly know persecution because of your stand for righteousness. You are marginalized. You are being mocked right now. And some of you, with great vile and venom, are hated for your stand in Christ right now. And you question in your very dark moments, does God really love me? Am I really his? Have I been separated from him? You consider your trial, and I want you to see this text, just the words of God. God does not assure us that suffering and trial will not be part of our lot in this life. No, what God does assure us is this, that suffering and trial and persecution and everything else in all creation will never ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? Yet, you still doubt, right? Weary saint, I understand more than you know. 
You're still like, Jason, this just sounds great, and I'm so glad we're at Romans 8. But my bones are weak. I struggle to believe this. You say, Westmount family, I'm just overcome by testing and earthly tumult. I've got nowhere else to turn. Consider with me this final thought. This everlasting love is God's love in Christ. Do you, do you see that? You say, yeah, I see that. Do you, do you see it? Look at it. Look at verses 38 and 39. Look at 39 specifically. This means that God's love for you, Christian, is bound up inseparably in his son. Do you see that? God's love for you is not tied to your circumstances or tied to you're just enough. God's love for you, saint, is tied up in his son, the Christ. And that's not just a theological statement. The implication is your assurance. In other words, the only way, saint, you can be separated from God's love is if God was separated from his son. Do you see that? That's the only way. That, of course, is positionally impossible, but let's leave with more, one more. Relationally, there's even more assurance here. We could also say the only way we can be separated from God's love is if God stopped loving his own son. If God stopped loving his own son. Right? That's the only way. So when God the Father is separated from God the Son, or when God the Father stops loving his own Son, then, I will give you this as we leave, then, when those conditions are met, then we can enter into insecurity. Right? Can we agree on that? When those conditions are met, then we'll enter into insecurity. But what's the blessed thought? Those conditions will never be met, will they? So do you have eternal security? The love of God in Christ Jesus? All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Precious saints, you are loved with an everlasting love from God and His Son. Nothing in heaven on earth can take that away. Nothing. And note this as we respond now in song. It is God's love for you in Christ. This is not all the little bits of felt love you can muster to give to God. Let's get away from that, right? I just got to feel this. And No, this is God's love for you. His initiation, his work, and by the way, his enablement to even respond to him is all God. We have none of this. Be encouraged, Westmount Faithful, please. In this love, he holds you fast. He's got you tight. Isn't that a comfort? It's not how much you can get the vise around God. You can't. He holds you fast. In such love and only in such love are we assured and secured. That is the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, how... Can we grasp these immense truths without your help? God, help us to do that. We cannot on our own. Help us to know and experience and live out in peace, security, your love for us by way of your Son, in your Son. Lord, we just want to praise you now for that truth, that it's all you, it's always ever been just you. And we merely respond. In your son's name we pray, amen. Our benediction this morning is taken from John 16, the words of of Jesus, of course, on the night he was betrayed. He said this, remember those words of comfort that he gave to his apostles. Before he prays to the Father in John 17, he says this in John 16, 31. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, what? I have overcome the world, says your Savior as you leave this place.
Your tribulations are indeed much to bear this morning. We'll have Brenda, Jeremy, and Christine will be here to pray with you at the front. Please avail yourself to them. They would love to bear that load with you. And for all of us as we go out now, please let us go out in the grace and peace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God be with you.